0: I told the crowd earlier that uh, at nine thirty that last night someone said, You never want to follow animals or children so i don 't know where that leaves me right now, um, but thank you to all of, all of our friends who made, uh, made our parade possible, our palm parade, um, just that we get to in some way symbolically reenact what happens as Jesus enters into the city on that Palm Sunday two thousand and so years ago I uh, want to start our time together by by looking at this picture. And by asking you to consider what's wrong with the picture. What is wrong with the picture? There is something factually inaccurate about this painting. Don't say it out loud if you know. But there is something factually inaccurate, okay? Keep that in your heads. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. We're going to look at our text. Our text is from Matthew chapter 21 today. It is a Palm Sunday narrative. And the Palm Sunday story is one of the only stories in the Gospels that shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so it's a very important and powerful story. Matthew's version is slightly longer and more detailed. And so we're going to look at that this morning as a way of inviting ourselves into this story even further. So let's start in Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. It says, As they, they being the crowds of people, Jesus and his disciples— approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. So let's pause right there. So Bethphage is next to a town called Bethany. Our best understanding is that Jesus has been staying in a town called Bethany for about a week. Bethany, if, you, if you're familiar with the biblical story, Bethany is where Ma, um, Lazarus and Mary and Martha are from, where Jesus has performed some miracles and kind of has a base outside of the city of Jerusalem. And so he's been there about a week. And crowds have been gathering and anticipating, will Jesus come into the city? So these groups have been gathering and they've been wondering, what's Jesus going to do? Let's continue. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, take out your iPhones and order us an Uber. No, he says, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So we'll pause again right there. If you've ever been watching a movie or a television show and you've seen a cop stop someone and take their car for a chase, like they pull out their badge and say, I'm a cop, I need your car and they take it away. That's essentially what's happening. So in Jewish culture, a teacher or prophet had the right to sort of ask permission to borrow someone's stuff like their donkey to ride uh, just for a temporary basis and they would give it back later. And so Jesus is using that authority to borrow a donkey in this situation. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. So we talked about Zechariah's prophecy, who says, Say to daughter Zion, Zion is just a fancy way of saying Israel or Jerusalem, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal or the baby of a donkey. Verse 6, the disciples went ahead and did as Jesus had instructed them, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So just an observation as the language gets a little tricky right there. It may sound like Jesus is riding on two donkeys at the same time. He's not. The word in the Greek of them refers to just the cloaks. Jesus is riding on cloaks on a donkey. Just to be clear. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, "'Hosanna to the Son of David!' Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Realize I skipped a verse back there. It says a crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So to spread cloaks on a road or garments on a road was a sign of respect. And then palm branches were a sign of royalty. So you're kind of getting a feel of what's going on here. And so they shout Hosanna, which means Save us, King. Save us, Son of David. Verse 10: When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, Who is this? Now, they knew who Jesus was. Jesus was not an unknown person. What they're essentially saying is, Let's say there's a college basketball tournament going on, and a team that no one expected to win keeps winning, and you say, who is this? Who is Loyola Chicago? I didn't know. I did not know this school existed before the tournament started. And now they're going to the Final Four. This is crazy, right? And they've ruined my bracket. So they're saying, who is this? And the crowds who have been traveling with Jesus, who are coming to the city, respond, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So let's go back to our picture. What's wrong with the picture? Huh? He's supposed to ride on the baby donkey. Jesus is on the wrong donkey in the picture. We're going to come back to this because this was not unintentional. Uh, sorry, this was intentional. It was there was a reason he was painted this way, but Jesus is on the wrong donkey. What I want you to see is that with stories that are familiar in the Christian narrative, with, with the Easter story and Palm Sunday and and all the things that we can hear some of these stories over and over again, we stop, we stop thinking critically about them and they just kind of float on by. We need to sit in the Palm Sunday story because without Palm Sunday, you don't get to Easter. And so we want to take this story seriously this morning and see how does it affect us and affect our faith and affect the way that we view what's going to happen in the coming days as Jesus makes his way towards the cross. And to do that, I want us to consider two groups. There are two groups of people, two crowds in our story today. The first crowd we might call... The Judean pilgrims. The Judean pilgrims. See, this story is happening at the Jewish Passover when the Jewish people would celebrate God's rescue out of Egypt. All of those years ago. And it was the high holy day for the Jewish, on the Jewish calendar. And so pilgrims from all over the city or all over the country would come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so the crowds that have been traveling with Jesus are essentially country folk. But they're also revolutionaries. They're those who have gathered around Jesus with their hopes and dreams pinned on Jesus will overthrow Roman rule in Israel and restore us to the rightful place of being God's people and having a king on the throne of Israel. They desperately want Jesus to be the king of Israel. And these are the crowds of people from the Judean countryside who have been traveling with Jesus for months, maybe even years, seeing him heal and do miracles and teach. And they are following him and they're with him. That's the first crowd. The second crowd in this story we might call the Jerusalem insiders. They are those who live in the city of Jerusalem who would have been relatively urban and and cosmopolitan for their day. So they might be considered city folks. And they are part of the Jewish religious establishment who have—they despise Roman rule— But they've become comfortable with it because the Roman rule has allowed them to maintain their privileged status as the powerful religious elite in Jerusalem. And so there's the crowd of the outsiders, the Judean pilgrims, and there's the crowd of the insiders, the Jerusalemites. Those are the two crowds in our story. We're going to walk through what they experience using three things, the parade, the donkey, in the word Hosanna. I think what we'll end up seeing is that through all the experiences and the emotions of Palm Sunday, that Jesus was not the king that they wanted, but he was the king that they needed. I think we might discover that for ourselves here today as well. So let's look at the parade. So by Jesus participating in this parade, even instigating it, right, Jesus sends for the donkeys, Right, he asks them to get the donkeys. Jesus is deliberately declaring his intent. By sending for the donkeys and by riding in the parade, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the king of Israel. He's declaring it. All throughout the Old Testament, when kings rode into the city of Jerusalem, they were declaring that they were now the new king of Israel. And so there's, there's no mistaking, this is crystal clear. Jesus is saying, I'm the king of Israel. Now, how would these groups have interpreted it? So the first group, the Judean pilgrims, would have thought, yes, this is exactly what we want. It would have been euphoric. It would have been so exciting. Jesus is the king. We knew it the whole time. If you've ever had one of those moments where you could just, you couldn't wait to get that thing that you wanted, to go on that trip. It was out ahead of you to, to meet that person and marry that person, right? There is something that you could not wait to have, to get, to do. And what we find is that it's a fickle euphoria, that when it passes by, we're like, okay, what's next? And these people, the Judean pilgrims, have their hopes and dreams pinned on Jesus as the king. But what we find is that they are more interested in what Jesus can do for them Then they are interested in Jesus himself. They are in love with this idea of Jesus being the king, but they are not interested in Jesus being Lord and Savior of their life. So we'll get there. What about the second group, the Jerusalem insiders, those in the city who said, who is this? They would have been indignant. This is a farce. How dare this Galilean peasant think he is the king of Israel? It would have called into question everything they believed about their power and their influence and their authority and their relationship with God. Here's the thing about them. They are supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel. If they missed on Jesus, and to to honor this parade would be to say they've missed on Jesus, then it means that they had been wrong about what it means to know God and have a relationship with God the whole time. It means they would have been wrong about what's good and what's right in the world. And how many times does Jesus walk into our lives and we have to either say Jesus is right or I'm right? And like a lot of us, the temptation is to double down. Well, Jesus can't be right because I know I'm right. And so they reject Jesus as king because if Jesus were king, then they wouldn't be right. So the temptation is to reject him. It's clear that on Palm Sunday, Jesus means to announce, even though he's been avoiding it for years, yes, I am the rightful king of Israel. Now, how does he do it? He rides in on a donkey. A donkey, a donkey, which is a sign of peace. It wasn't uncommon for kings to ride in on donkeys in antiquity. A donkey meant peace. If a king rode in on a donkey, it meant he was a peaceable king. However, Jesus didn't just ride in on a donkey. Jesus rode in on a baby donkey, which would have been humiliating. Okay. So we're going to show this video. This is uh, what it might have looked like for a full-grown man to ride a baby donkey. You know what's coming. That's actual footage from Jesus' day, by the way. That's, uh, that's what, no, 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 don't believe that. Uh, it would have been so humiliating for a full-grown man to ride on a donkey. So both—a baby donkey. So both groups would have been scandalized, but by, for different reasons. See, the Galilean pilgrims, the crowds that had followed Jesus and wanted him to be king, they would have been scandalized by this because it would have been confusing. Yay, Jesus, we're so glad you're riding in to be king, but why on a baby donkey? So weird, right? They expected Jesus to be this proud conquering king. So if proud conquering kings rode into town on a war horse, which was common, if humble, peaceable kings rode into town on a donkey, what kind of king rides into town on a baby donkey? One who is exaggerating. This will not go the way you intend. This will not go the way that you have planned. And this calls into question all of the tightly held plans, all of the control the crowds thought they had over who Jesus was. And he does that in our lives, doesn't he? He sometimes uses exaggerations and extreme examples to shock us into realizing we are holding so tightly to a future that we have no control over. And in fact, are we willing to let go of that future if Jesus does something different? The second crowd, the Jerusalem insiders, the religious elite, they would have seen this as an intentional embarrassment and mockery of Jewish leadership. Come on, Jesus, not in front of the Romans. Riding in on a baby donkey. Who does that? It's like if if the president of the United States were in a parade riding on a tricycle. Or if the Pope was being pulled around in a little red wagon. How goofy would that look? Let's go back to our picture of Jesus on the wrong donkey. In in high Western civilization, in the middle of a sort of medieval culture, when this kind of artwork was painted, Christianity was so tied to the power and influence of Western Europe. No one in their right minds would have painted a picture of Jesus looking ridiculous riding a baby donkey. So it makes Jesus look better to put him on the big donkey. He looks like a small horse. It cleans Jesus up. He's not embarrassing that way. Because Jesus was supposed to be powerful and conquering. And just like the affluent high western civilization— And so they would paint him this way to avoid making a mockery out of Jesus. And yet Jesus himself calls into question all the ways that we are tempted to wear masks and to cover ourselves up and to make ourselves look better than we actually are. He calls into question all of the ways in which we align ourselves with the powers of the day to make ourselves appear something that we're not. We might say that Jesus makes a mockery of the masks we wear. Last week in our services, we had a children's musical where they um, acted like superheroes. It was this beautiful thing where they had all these little superheroes, and they were wearing masks, and they talked about the ways in which they, they used their superpowers to appear something they weren't. And at the end of the play, they took off their masks, and they laid them down, and they said, this is not more valuable than being a child of God. And so they laid it down and said, I am a child of God. And when Jesus rides into town as the conquering king on a baby donkey, in humility and in peace and in love, what he does is he makes a mockery and calls worthless all of the masks that we're tempted to wear to show others just how good we are, just how much we have it together. And he says, we are all in need of a king who rides into town on a baby donkey. And then we also understand what he does. What is his agenda as the king? He is the king who saves. The word Hosanna just means save us or save us, O king. And so by riding in this parade and having the words Hosanna shouted over him, Jesus is admitting, yes, I am the king, the king who saves. We're all relatively steeped in in democracy. And so the idea of a king who saves can be a little foreign to us. So I thought about my wife Ashley and I watched... The first two seasons of *The Crown*, the Netflix drama that chronicles the life of, uh, of, of Queen Elizabeth, and one of the fascinating things that continues to come up throughout the show is that the people of the UK—they they say they love their royals. They love the royals. They live vicariously through the queen, through the crown, and as the crown goes, so go the people. And through all of the pomp and the circumstance and the mystery and the wealth and the showmanship, the people love it because they live vicariously through it. We might say that the king or the queen was representative for all of the people. And so for the people of Israel to say, save us, O King Jesus... Was to say that if Jesus was the king, he was able to deliver them and to deliver them as a people and to offer them salvation unto God. Now, how would both groups have understood this? Our first group, the group of Galilean pilgrims who had been following Jesus, they would have heard, Save us, Jesus, as save us from Rome, save us from systemic injustice. Save us from the oppressive systems of the Jewish leadership of our day, from the shame of being outsiders. Save us, Jesus. But what they did not do was they did not reckon with the fact that Jesus also wanted to redeem them. He wanted to save them. He constantly, as he traveled with these people for years, he told them stories and parables about what's going on in your heart. How are you processing this? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear who God is and what God is doing? He's trying to get them to understand that they don't just need Jesus for the stuff that's going on out there. They need Jesus for the stuff that's going on in here. The second group, the Jerusalem insiders, they would have been particularly miffed over Jesus allowing this. Not only, Jesus, how dare you come riding in on a donkey? Jesus, how dare you let them say you are the Savior? You're not God. That's what they thought, that Jesus did not have the right to be proclaimed, save us, O King, over him. Because if he did, again, that would call into question all of the ways which they had become so good at following the rules, doing the right things, knowing all the right stuff, and believing that doing those things and knowing those things was enough to make them right with God. And they had given up on trying to walk in the way of relationship with God. They just had to know all the right stuff and do all the right stuff. And they missed out on their need for Jesus because they knew everything. Why would they need Jesus? They already had it all figured out. What we find is that both groups missed on their need for Jesus. Theologian N.T. Wright says that in the first century, the Jewish people of the first century were expecting their God to come back in person to rescue them, revealing his glorious presence, defeating their enemies, and reestablishing them as his people once and for all. They got Jesus. They got Jesus. He was an unexpected king that they got. Both groups... We're blind to their need for Him. And yet what we see is that the city is starting to become full of energy and chaos and turmoil. The people are waiting for something. And in the world we live in, there's all kinds of chaos and turmoil in big ways and in small. And I believe that the world is waiting on Christians to walk the way of Jesus in the midst of a chaotic and a crazy world. We live in a world full of broken relationships, broken relationships between husbands and wives and parents and kids, between friends. We live in a world where workplaces are divided and where people say take any opportunity to throw stones and to cast aspersions and to look down on others. We choose to identify with groups so that we are against the other group. We find that even in a local high school, that tensions boil over and cause disruption. This is a chaotic time. My encouragement to you is to, just like Jesus, to walk in the midst of it, to not choose sides, but to go outside of the lines, and to love everyone As much as you may find in yourself the ability to. Now, we know that we don't love out of our own capacities. We love out of the fact that Jesus has first loved us. And so Jesus was called by people on one side. They said, Come on, Jesus, let's overthrow Rome, let's overthrow the religious authority of the day. And on the other side, there were those who said, Jesus, just walk away. Let's just go out into the desert and pray and seek God. And God will do something amazing. Jesus was constantly tempted and pushed to pick a side, but he didn't. He loved both sides. He loved both sides unto death. For the outsiders, he was exactly what they needed. And for the insiders, he was what they needed. Jesus crossed a line on Palm Sunday when he walked into the city. He didn't have to. He didn't. He could have been a prophet up in the north in Galilee. He could have had an amazing life in ministry. He could have healed and taught and had a good long life. And he crosses a line and he walks towards a bloody coronation as king of Israel, the king who is set in motion how much God loves Israel. And how much God loves us. Jesus loved them, each of them, both sides, all sides, unto death, the way that He loves us unto death. Jesus was not the king they wanted, and He was the king that they needed. What about you? I believe that Jesus is the king that you need, the king who dies on the cross and rises from the dead to say that all of the things that we have trusted in to give us life are bankrupt and aren't working, but he is there for us on Palm Sunday as he enters into the city to become the rightful king of Israel. I want to close with this. As I walked in the building this week, I was surprised a little bit by some of the construction I saw. Now, I know that we're all living in the midst of the construction that's going on. It's, it's, it's going to result in something really beautiful really soon. Um, but what was on my head was, we're told, and I say we, I mean, we know that construction is coming to a close. That in the next couple of months, it'll, it'll be done with. That all this beautiful construction will be finished, and we'll have an amazing finished facility. And as I walked in this week, though, it hit me, things continue to come apart. Like it feels like it's getting worse, even though I'm told we're on the back end of the construction project. So you can see these pictures. These are I-beams stuck out of a woman's bathroom upstairs. Things are getting better, right? Like things are almost done. What I'm told is, and I believe it, that things get worse before they get better. That sometimes things get worse before they get better. What we know about Holy Week is it for Jesus, things are going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. So just like in this construction project, we've reminded ourselves, here's why we're doing this. We're putting up with the mess because we believe that this is something God's calling us to do, that we may provide the best possible environment at CPC for future generations and for current generations to be inviting and to welcome people into God's family and into God's presence. And just like that, on Palm Sunday we're being reminded of who Jesus is, the King and Savior of the world, so that when the dark days ahead come, we may be reminded of who he is, and that even though it's going to get worse before it gets better, it will get better, because Jesus will walk to the cross, enduring its shame, and say, it has no hold on us. The prophets in the Old Testament told the people of Israel that there will come a day when God will again be on the throne. And when God is on the throne, he will be doing something in the world that cannot be stopped. It will spread to the edges of the earth and people will know who God is and that God made them and that God loves them with a reckless love. On Palm Sunday, Jesus declares, God is on the throne of Israel. Amen. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, we thank you for who you are, for how you love us, for how you come to us riding on a donkey in humility, that we may know that you are the God who comes to reign on the throne of Israel to defeat all the enemies that threaten to let the darkness win And yet the light continues to shine even today because you will not be stopped. As you ride in, as you walk to your death, as you experience resurrection, as you call us into your new life, may we know that abundance. May we be those who 2,000 years ago stood on the side of the road and said, Hosanna to King Jesus, save us, King Jesus. May we be those who learn what it looks like to lay all of our lives, all of our gifts, all of our offerings at your feet. And as we move forward in worship at this time, as we move forward into a time of offering, may we reflect on what it looks like to say, save us, King Jesus. All we have is yours. You are not always the king that we look for, but you are absolutely the king that we need. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Amen.